turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 12, and I'm just going to read verses 12 through 16. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning, as we look at what was superintended by the hand of this apostle for the sake of your church that was really superintended by your spirit for the sake of your son's body, the church, we pray that we would be given ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church, that we would understand who the son is that we would understand that he sees us, that he knows us, and that would both be a warning to us and a comfort to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the sayings that I hear. Um, I'm not um, that up on all of the sayings, so if I've heard them, you've likely heard them, and if I've heard them, you likely heard them long ago. But I'll give you a couple of them um, that I hear popularly or I've heard popularly. One is um, in a response to people who are critiquing you in some way. I hear the saying, well, God knows my heart. Right? Or in response to being judged, I hear the saying, God is my judge. I think I've seen that one on bumper stickers. Let's consider those statements for a moment. What, what do they mean? I suppose folks are saying, you don't know my heart. And when they're saying that, they're saying, my motives are better than you think. I suppose that's what they're saying. I suppose they're saying something like, and I don't care what you think about me. God is the only judge who matters, and, and he will judge me justly. I suppose that's what they're saying. And there's much truth here. It's true, I don't know your heart, nor does, any, nor does any other man. I'm going to tell you in a minute, I don't even know my own heart, nor do you. It's also true that God does know you, and God will judge you justly. That's not always comforting. I want to push that a step further. Though Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, sees everything. And he will return 
to judge you justly. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And judgment is before a just judge who sees every intention of your heart. A judge who hears and remembers every careless word. A judge who sees straight through you into the depths of your being. And this morning I want to look at this just judge, Jesus, the Son of God. And as we consider him as our just judge, I want to look at two truths connected with the incarnate Son as our just judge. And they're real simple. Here's what they are. The warning in hearing that the incarnate Son is our just judge. And second, the comfort in hearing that the incarnate Son is our just judge. Now, the warning I'll emphasize this morning, I'll pick up the comfort a bit. Jason will pick up the comfort in more depth next week as we continue to move through this text. So, but we'll look at both. First, the warning in having Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, as our just judge, and then the comfort of that. Um, so let's look first at the warning. The warning I want to give you is this. The Son sees everything. Hear that? The Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who lived and died and rose from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, whoever lives and rules and reigns sees everything. He doesn't just see things that you do behaviorally. He sees the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Let me start with a question you may have never considered before by looking at Hebrews 4.12 with you. Look there with me at that verse, Hebrews 4.12. We'll just read 4.12 and 13 and, and, and ask a question you might not have thought much about. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here's the question I want to ask. Is the word of God in verse 12 a reference to the word of God, i.e. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God? In other words, is the word of God in verse 12 a reference to the essential word of God? The word of God who is the Lord of lords and King of kings. Is it a reference to him, the Son of God? Or is the word of God in verse 12 a reference to his written word, what we have in the Bible? Maybe another variation of that would be his written word being spoken or preached. But there again, we're coming back to his written word being rightly preached. So is it a reference to his person, the person of the Son of God or the Word of God, or is it a reference to the written Word? Now, mo most modern scholars, the vast majority of modern scholars following actually Calvin, um, largely argue that the phrase, the Word of God, is referencing the written Word of God, the Word of God that we have in our Bibles. I have taught that same thing for years. The arguments against this being 
the arguments against this being about Jesus or the Son of God are basically three. In other words, the arguments for it being the written word are arguments first and foremost against it being the Son of God. Now why is that? Why are the arguments for it being the written word arguments against it being the Son of God? Because prior to Calvin, the vast majority of the church read verse 12 and thought the incarnate Son, not the Bible. Uh, now, I'm not saying that everyone after Calvin agrees with Calvin. There's actually um, quite a bit of differences, but in the modern era, most folks largely agree with Calvin. Here are the arguments against this being about Jesus, the Word of God being about Jesus. Here's what they are. First, only John, this is what their argument is, only John the Apostle, John the Revelator, John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation, only John ever speaks of the Son as the Word of God. That's their first argument. Only John ever uses the phrase about the Son as the Word of God. That's, a, that's an argument that they make. Second, they say, the words here can't describe a person because they sound impersonal. For example, to say that the Word of God, the Son of God is living and active, you go, okay, well that maybe can describe a person, but what about sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, that doesn't sound like a person. That sounds impersonal. Therefore, that can't be about the Son of God. So only John uses the phrase, the, son, the Word of God, with regard to the Son of God. That's the first argument. Second, it can't be describing a person because it sounds impersonal, like a sharp two-edged sword. Third, the overall text, the overall text isn't speaking about the Son himself, but about the gospel. So look at verse 2 of chapter 4. For good news, that's gospel, the gospel came to us just as them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. So they're saying that the third argument is that this text isn't really overall speaking first and foremost about the Son in this immediate context, but is speaking about the gospel, the good news about the Son, but not the Son properly. Those are their, major, their three major arguments, okay? I'm not saying there aren't offshoots of those, but the, those are the three major arguments. Only John ever uses the Word of God to reference the Son, that phrase, the Word of God to reference the Son. The language looks awfully impersonal, being described like a sharp two-edged sword, okay? And the overall text seems to be speaking mostly about the gospel properly, the Son in reference to the gospel, but not properly to the Son, Okay, so those are their major arguments. Now, I want to reply to these arguments and reverse my own teachings over the year and argue that the Word of God is speaking of the Son of God incarnate, Jesus. In other words, I'm going to disagree with maybe past sermons you've heard from me, because I'm sure I've referenced this text with regard to the Bible. I spent a lot of time studying this text and came to the conclusion I've been wrong and, and that the majority of church history has been right. So Why? Why is it? Now, I want you to know as I do this, good men differ on this. You guys hear what I said there? I, I think I'm a decent guy, and I differ with me, right? So good, good men differ. Much better thinkers than me differ, right? But, but here are the arguments why I think this is actually speaking of the Son of God incarnate. First, it's true that Jesus is called the Word of God in Scripture, and that we conclusively can say that those occurrences where he's called the Word of God in Scripture are only in John. However, however, 
There are some debatable texts that might be referring to the Word of God in Paul that might be referring to the Word of God as the Son. But more importantly than that, Scripture has one author. There's one ultimate author in Scripture. One ultimate author. And we have to take that into consideration. We can't say, well, only John uses the Word of God for the Son of God, and therefore the author of Hebrews wouldn't have, wouldn't have been familiar with using that phrase for the Son of God. I just think that's a problematic argument um, that, that buys into a kind of critical understanding of the Bible where we divide these authors up and pretend like or at least overshadow the idea that there is one author of the Bible and he speaks with one voice. Um, so I think that's just a critique of that assertion being that strong. Second, Jesus is described elsewhere. Jesus is described elsewhere in the manner he is here. For example, the idea that Jesus is living. Look at, keep your hand in Hebrews 4 and just look at John 1. We'll look at the Gospel of John and see several of these descriptions with him. But keep your hand in Hebrews 4. John chapter 1. where Our description in Hebrews 4.12 is, For the word of God is living. So look at John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, that's the Word of God, was life, and the life was the light of men. He has life in Himself. It is proper to predicate to Him that He's living. Not only is he living in the sense that he is resurrected and therefore um, living, but he's living in the ultimate sense in that he is in himself life. The word of God is living. He's powerful. Folks, if it's true what John just said there in verses 2 and 3 that he created all things, he's powerful. That word we have in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, is probably better translated, is living and powerful. He's a powerful God. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says, and you can keep your hand in John and in Hebrews for right now, but listen to what the author of Hebrews says about him. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is powerful. He is life in himself. He knows and discerns the heart. Remember in the description in verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, Jesus knows and discerns the heart. Look at John chapter 2. If you're in Hebrews 4, keep your hand there, but look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem... At the Passover fe feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He didn't need anybody to bear witness about man. 
he himself knew what was in man. He can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He is living, he's powerful, he discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He is the judge of all people. This says that in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, go back there. He's doing this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, verse 13 of Hebrews 4. But all are naked and exposed the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He's the judge. Now keep your hand in Hebrews 4 and go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John speaking of seeing the resurrected Christ. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died. Notice that again, the living one. He's living. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Who ultimately holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and who ultimately holds the keys of death and Hades? The judge of all. Who is the judge of all? Jesus, the Son of God, I'm arguing, even in Hebrews 4, the Word of God. He is living and powerful. He knows and discerns the heart. He is the judge of all. But, okay, what about this question of him being sharper than any two-edged sword? That seems like an odd description of a person, doesn't it? Look at Isaiah. Keep your hand in Hebrews 4, and look at Isaiah in chapter 49, Isaiah 49. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you know that in chapters 1 through 39, you're essentially reading about judgment that has happened against the northern kingdom of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians, judgment that is coming for the southern kingdom of Judah at the hand of the Babylonians, and then in chapter 40, you start the book of comfort, if you will, in Isaiah, and he talks about this coming suffering servant this servant who will deliver the nations. Now as he describes a servant, the servant is referred to as Israel. Israel is being referred to as Israel, my servant, my chosen one, my elect one. But we know that these passages in Isaiah are applied directly to Christ, who is himself true Israel. He's the federal head of Israel in that sense as their Messiah. He is true Israel. Now look at what it says in Isaiah 49 verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. He's not just speaking to Israel here. He's actually speaking to the nations now. Now look what he says. The Lord, Yahweh, that is, called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. You can think of this scene, incidentally, with regard to the Virgin Mary. As he's in the womb, he's being named Jesus, for he will save his people. Emmanuel for he is God with us. Now notice what it says. He made, me, he made my mouth like a what? Sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. So the son here is referred to as a sharp sword. His mouth is like a sharp sword. And he is referred to as a polished arrow. We know that's just imagery explaining the fact that he cuts right through you. Right? We know this is about the son because drop down to Isaiah 49.6. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you a, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is about the son. He's described as a sharp sword. He has it coming from his mouth. Now, look at 
Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We know this scene in Revelation 19. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb as the Lamb returns. He holds, there are two suppers that happen here, right? The first supper is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's blessed to be an invited guest to the marriage supper of the Lamb in which you will feast forever with the Lamb and his kingdom. The second supper you don't want to be a part of. You're a part of it in a different way. You are the supper. In the first supper, you're eating the lamb's food. In the second supper, supper you're being eaten by the birds of the air. Um, but look at this description of Jesus in verse 11. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. By the way, that language comes from Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the people keep saying, the Lord doesn't see us in what we're doing. And so the imagery you're given of the Lord is this bizarre chariot with these wheels with eyes everywhere, emphasizing, emphasizing, I see you. I see exactly what you're doing. There's nothing hidden from my sight. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Listen, he's called the Word of God in the context of judgment. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then he's going to see the birds called down to feast on the great supper of God, eating the carcasses of the dead bodies and drinking their blood. It's a horrific scene. Clear what the scene is about. The Son of God returning, the Word of God coming in judgment, who sees all, who has a sharp sword coming from his mouth, who is living and powerful, who knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. So my point is that Jesus is called the Word of God in Scripture in multiple places. Scripture has one author. That Jesus is described with every one of these descriptors you see in verse 12 of Hebrews 4. Third, I want to argue that the flow of the whole argument is actually about the Son properly. That when the gospel's brought up, it's actually the Son properly being referred to. You know, before I said that their argument is that it's about the gospel properly, and the Son sort of in the sense that it's about him, but not about him properly. But I actually want to argue that the whole flow of the whole argument is about the Son properly. I'll give you five little quick arguments. You don't have to write them down. Just, just listen to them. First, we note that the incarnate Son, I would say this, is the gospel. Hear that? He is our rest. He is the one we are considering and sharing in. In chapter 3 and in verse 1, listen to the argument. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. If I keep going back, I can go to Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his or in his 
son. Who is this book about? Chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. See, if we believe the gospel, if we mix this gospel word of our salvation with faith, what have we come to share in? Christ, the Son, the one who has himself spoken to us. He is the person who saves us and judges us. He is the prize. He is the reward. Second, the syntax and structure of the sentence itself, verses 12 and 13, are one sentence. And the syntax and structure of it point to this being about the Son of God himself. Notice how the verse opens, verse 12. And this is where, you, this is where I, I wish you all knew Greek and I could just put the Greek on the overhead and you'd go, ah, oh, there it is. Right? But you don't. So I'm going to do my best. My few Greek students in here are looking at their text and they know exactly what I'm looking at. In verse 12, it starts, Halagos to Theu, the word of God. It actually starts zone with, the, with that zone is this, is this participle that means living. And then it says gar, which is the word we have for. It's called a post-positive. It's a second, they put for, day, that, but, and, etc. as the second word in their sentence. So for, living is, the living one is, if you will, or living is, and then this phrase, halagas tutheu, the word of God. The word of God is living, for the word of God is living. And then this sentence closes in verse 13 with this last phrase that you see, to whom we must give an account, in Greek, proshan hemin halagos, which doesn't help you entirely except to say this. Did you hear the last two words? The beginning, halagos to theu, the word of God. How does it end? Halagos. It begins and ends. It's bracketed by this phrase, halagos, halagos, the word, the word. Now, we translate it this way because we can't bring the whole pun out. But this is a pun. It's a play on words. What he's saying is, you will give a word to the word. What's the word? The word about your life, you will account for to the word himself. That's what he's doing in the pun. We just don't pick it up well in English. It's hard. John Owen actually refers to this as an elegant construction. By the way, I'm following John Owen's argument here, um, so, so I'm not alone in this. But he, gives, he, he says this is, the sentence has an elegant construction in which you have this pun that Jesus is the word of God to whom we must give a word, an account. Further, the pronouns in verse 13, look there at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Notice that word, his. Like all of a sudden we change from the word of God as this impersonal book to his. Who's his? From his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. Who's him? To whom we must, the one to whom we must give an account. Who is his and him? Well, grammatically, those pronouns, you're looking for who, what they match with as far as a noun. You guys understand this. So if I say, I'm going to go out to dinner with Jason and Kristen. She tends to order like a child, right? You all know she likes chicken nuggets and things like that, right? So you all know, I've just given Kristen a hard time, she gets it, but you all know that she is a reference, a pronoun that refers back to Kristen, not Jason, right? 
you're looking for a pronoun that matches the noun. Okay? Well, here, the pronoun his and him, what do they match? They have to match in K, or excuse me, in gender and in number with their noun. Same gender. She with a girl, he with a boy. I know this is hard in California, but just follow, okay? <laughs> she with a girl, he with a boy, right? They gotta, they've got to match in gender and in number. She is not a they. She's not a plural. She's a singular. She's, a, okay? So these pronouns are masculine and singular. What noun do they match with? Well, a masculine singular noun. Which one is it in this sentence? Halagos, the word, the word, the word. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, the word, the word of God. Thus the whole unit is a tight unit describing the same person. He is the one who sees all, who discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, who judges to whom we must give an account. Third, what's the... What's the point of this whole text so far? In the book of Hebrews, I mean. This whole letter. Listen, listen to what he's been saying. If you ought to fear failing to listen to Moses, then you really ought to fear. How much more should you fear not listening to the Son himself? Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, he's just compared in chapter 1 the messenger's of the Old Testament, the angels and Moses, really, with the Son. Now he says in verse 1, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away for, from it. For since the message declared by angels, that's at Mount Sinai, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that's a reference to Jesus. And then attested to us by those who heard, that's the apostles. This whole text has been telling us, you heard a word in the Old Testament. It was good and right and true. But you've heard an even better word in the New Testament, in the Son himself, who is the word. If you listen to that, you sure better listen to this. How much more ought you to listen to this? Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5. <clears throat> Again, this comparison. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Notice Moses is a servant in God's house. He is the overarching figure, if you will, the, the, the preeminent figure in the Old Testament as a deliverer of the word, of the law. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. See, if you listen to Moses, who's a servant in the house, how much more ought you listen to the son who owns the house, who built the house? Go down to verse 12 take, of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. That's being compared with verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. In the Old Testament, they heard God speak through Moses, and they hardened their hearts. And now he's saying in the New Testament, take care, brothers. Don't be like them. Listen to the Son. 
listen to the son. If they listen to Moses, if they feared failing to believe the servant Moses, how much more ought we to fear believing the son? Fourth argument for why 12 and 13 are about the word of God as the son is verse 14 of chapter 4. He continues right on with his argument about Jesus. Since then we have a great, great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold our confession, fast our confession. He's just continuing on with the argument. Here's my point that I'm driving at. It is the eternal word of God, the essential word of God, the incarnate Son, the Christ, who sees you and discerns your heart. He knows you and judges your temporary faith. Now the question is, why do verses 12 and 13 come in at this point in the text in Hebrews 4? Remember the commands? Look at Hebrews 4.1, the first command. We spent the last three weeks here, so hopefully you remember. Verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We're commanded to fear. What are we fearing? We're not fearing weak faith. We're fearing temporary faith. There's a distinction that is quite important between weak faith that still apprehends a strong Savior and temporary faith, which is false faith. And he's saying, be afraid of temporary faith. Be afraid of that. You don't want that. That leads you nowhere but to ruin and destruction. You don't ever enter his rest with false faith. You want true faith. Temporary faith is faith that does not endure. And that's what he goes on to verse 11 to say. Drop down to chapter 4 and verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Hear the striving second command. Fear temporary faith, first command. Second command, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that they did in the Old Testament when they didn't listen. In other words, what he's saying is this. You should fear temporary faith, faith that does not endure. You should fear that. Faith that doesn't persevere. And following those commands, he says, let me warn you, the all-seeing and watchful eye of Christ is upon you. Hear what he's saying? You should fear temporary faith. You should strive to make sure that your faith isn't false. And let me warn you, Jesus can see everything, and he's your judge. He sees what you do in secret. He sees what you covet in your heart. Christ sees you, not just your external and public behaviors, but he sees you, your heart, your thoughts, your intentions. He knows them all. Christ sees all things as they really are. Listen, he knows the thoughts of, and intentions of your hearts that are hidden even from you. He knows you better than you know you. You guys remember Peter? The Apostle Peter, when he talk, Jesus talks about going to the cross, and Peter says, and, and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter says, I'll never betray you. I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. And then Jesus begins to pray for him because Jesus knows he'll, that Peter will betray him. Listen, Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew Peter. Jesus knows you better than you know you. That's why we're so comforted when we hear Paul say in Romans 8 that Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for us. 
because he knows us better than we know us. Jesus knew Peter would fall, and Jesus prayed to keep him. Peter did not know his own heart as well as Jesus did. And we don't really know ourselves. I don't know my own motives. I don't. I contend that we don't know ourselves as we ought, nor can we truly know our own hearts. Our hearts are wicked and desperately evil. Who can know them? You say, but I'm regenerate. Yes, but you're still in the flesh. You're not, there's, there is this already and not yet to the Christian life. There is this thing that you have been reborn into, this new heavens and new earth, that you are not yet fully experiencing until Christ returns. And so you're dealing with this already of this world and, if you will, your salvation in Christ in the context of this fallen world and the not yet, these promises you're waiting to be fulfilled where sin no longer has a part of you. So that you can hear what Paul hears and agree with Paul when he says, man, the very thing that I want to do, I don't do, and the very thing that I, want, uh, that I, I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and he finally comes to this conclusion, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You ever been there? And while we can't always know our own hearts, and I'm telling you, you almost never know your own heart. Never. When you say to somebody, you don't know my heart, you ought to follow up with, and neither do I. While we can't know, always know our own hearts, we can heed the warnings that are given here. We do not heed the warning as those who know our own hearts, but as those who trust God's word over our own hearts. In other words, I decide that what this says is true is true, and what this says is true I ought to be concerned about. My heart is not something I can trust. God's word is something I can trust. In fact, in Jeremiah, he's again and again condemning Israel because they, they follow after their own hearts. They listen to their own hearts. The condemnation of the false prophets is the false prophets in Jeremiah tell them, listen to your own hearts. You guys don't hear that anywhere, do you? Friends, we do not really understand our own hearts we do not know our own hearts, but the Lord does know our hearts. Thus, we ought to fear our own hearts. We ought to fear the wisdom of the world, which tells us to follow our own hearts. Please hear this. Our self-deceiving hearts in themselves will lead us to temporary faith. They will lead us to an unwillingness to labor and strive and persevere in the faith. And the lack of fear of temporary faith and the unwillingness to labor cause many to make shipwreck of the faith. And that's what this pastor writing this book is concerned about. He knows that the wilderness, wilderness of this world that we are walking through distracts and destroys. He knows that and he's concerned. And the author of Hebrews wants to keep you from making shipwreck of the faith. And you might think, well, that's all so heavy. Isn't he motivating me with fear? Yes, he is. He is. Some, fear can be a good motivator. You understand that? Son, I don't want you to play in the highway. A car might kill you. I can't believe that parent motivating his kid with fear. What kind of parent tells their kid, don't go in the highway because a car might kill him? A good parent tells him that motivates them with fear. In fact, he's commanding you to be afraid of something. 
your own self-deceiving heart and God's judgment upon you if you're listening to your own self-deceiving heart. Further, you ought to be afraid of God and his wrath against sin if you have temporary faith. If you have faith that does not strive to endure in the race, if you have faith that does not issue in obedience, in other words, if you have false faith, I'm not speaking again about weak faith, but about temporary faith. So how do I know if I have temporary faith? Let me try to give you three quick signs. You ready? First, temporary faith does not endure. That's like in the definition of temporary, right? Okay, so that ought to be the most obvious one. Temporary faith does not endure because it's temporary. You stop listening to the Holy Spirit when he speaks. That's what he's getting at at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. Therefore, when the Holy Spirit speaks, right? You need to listen to him. You start following your own wisdom. You don't take care. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You just don't listen. You follow your own wisdom. You harden your heart against the voice of God and his word. You eventually, eventually, you finally and fully fall away from the faith and run after your own passions and desires. You start listening to your own heart. In other words, in the colloquialism of our culture, you do you. That does not generally look like sudden and shocking apostasy, I want to warn you. It's not like someone's walking in godliness in the word, in the church, loving the Lord, and the next day they wake up and think, I'm abandoning it all today, right? That isn't generally how it happens. It more often looks like a slow turn in the wrong direction, which ends up leading you onto the road to destruction. You may appear to start well, but then you get distracted by the foolish deceits and sinful desires of the world and the flesh and the devil. You're like a person who starts the marathon of the Christian race like you're running a 50-yard dash, right? And you get out of the gate with lots of excitement and urgency, and you get distracted and find what looks to be a smoother and less difficult path, so you depart the race for for that path, and you find yourself back on the road to destruction. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower, doesn't he? the four soils. You can go read Matthew 13, 18 through 22 later in his explanation of that parable. But there's actually only two soils there ultimately. Those who produce fruit, which is the last soil, and the first three kinds of soil, which are all varieties of false faith. Second sign, temporary faith is ultimately disobedient. So temporary faith does not endure. Second, temporary faith is ultimately disobedient. Verse 4, I mean chapter, chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Faith that does not issue in obedience, that does not bear fruit in obedience to God, is not saving faith. Faith in Christ is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do we understand that? He makes your heart new so that you want to listen to the Lord and obey his law. That's the promise of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31, which is picked up, by the way, by our author in Hebrews 8, chapter 8 and verse 8 through 10, the promise is, behold, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like my covenant that they broke. When I brought the covenant I made with them, then I brought them out of the land of Egypt, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What's the new covenant? I will write my law on their hearts, not on tablets of stone external to them, but on their hearts. Or Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and 20 through 27. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I'll put a new spirit within you. And I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my ordinances, my law. The Holy Spirit does that work in us. Yes, the law cannot save you. And yes, 
as, as a means of meriting salvation, you've been freed from the law. But freedom from the law as a means of salvation has also become freedom from obeying the dictates of your own rebellious and sinful heart. You now see the law as a gracious guide in walking with the Lord. In the new covenant, what I'm saying is the law, or excuse me, in the new covenant, the Lord causes you to love the law. True believers delight in the law. We read Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And we think, man, that is blessed. As we go through that psalm, we have a sense of joy and repentance and obedience. We actually see the keeping of the law as the restful work of being yoked to Christ. We find joy in hearing from our God. So first, false faith doesn't endure. Second, false or temporary faith um, doesn't keep the law. It has no interest in law keeping. Third, false or temporary faith does not love Christ's people. Hear that? Doesn't love the church. Another sign of false faith, temporary faith. Doesn't love Christ's people. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 24, he says, Brothers, let, let us not forsake the gathering ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us come together to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And even more as we see the day drawing near. And then he goes on to give a stern warning if you're not listening. And then after that stern warning, after he says, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, he then goes on and says, but I remember so many good things about you. You started so well. You, you saw your people going to prison, the Christian church folks going to prison for the gospel, and you suffered the plundering of your own property for the sake of serving them. You suffered in great ways to serve those Christian people because you loved the church. Believers love the church. That's why 1 John 3.14 will go on to say that if you don't love the brothers, that's speaking about the church, then you don't have God's spirit in you. The love of God is not in you. Temporary faith sees Christ's church as some kind of burden to attend. But we see Christ's church as our people who we want to be with. We know we need them. Like a foreigner in a strange land, we see the church like our nation's embassy and we can't wait to get there. We see the church like a marathon runner sees those who run with him and encourage him on the path. We see the church like a marathon runner who's running and sees those who come alongside to give him refreshment during the race. Here's my concern pastorally at this point. I do not want you to hear what I'm saying. I don't want you to hear what the author of Hebrews is saying and then say, oh no, maybe I have temporary faith. I need to look more deeply into myself to find the resources to persevere. You won't find them there. It's what's in yourself that's your problem. It isn't the answer to your problem. The antidote to temporary or false faith is not found in you. The resources to persevere in the faith are found in Christ. That's why he goes on in verse 14 of chapter 4 and says, Since then, we have a great high priest. That's the one who brings us before the Father, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. So there's one respect in which he hasn't been tempted as we are. He doesn't have his own sinful passions and desires that have tempted him. He's been tempted by the world and by the devil, but never by his own flesh because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not in sinful flesh. Right? So he's tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When do, where do you find help in the time of need? Not in you. What you find in you is what you're fearful that Jesus is going to see. Not what's going to help you out of that predicament. It's what you find in him. At the throne of grace is where you find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. True faith knows that we need to cling to Christ. It knows that we need to be constantly reminded of God's word. You know that the company of those on the narrow path are, is the company you need. You know your only hope is not found in how strong you perceive your faith to be. Your only hope is that your Savior is living and powerful and faithful and merciful and that he cares for you. And so you fear your own capacity to be self-deceived and rebellious and you trust the Lord who is always true. See, the Son sees you and he judges justly and that's a warning to us. But it's also an encouragement or a comfort to us. It's a comfort to us. And I just want to wrap up with that comfort briefly. Jason's going to preach whole sermons on this, I'm sure. But I just want to wrap up with it. The Son's just judgment also comforts us. It, it comforts us in two ways, quickly. One, Christ will justly judge the enemies of his people who treat us unjustly. He will. So I want justice for those who treat people unjustly. Christ will justly judge them. That's why we're told in 1 Peter 2 that Christ himself entrusted himself to him who judges justly and that we as believers ought to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. The poor Hebrew Christians were being treated poorly for their faith in Christ. Life had become difficult for them. They were imprisoned for the faith. They were suffering much loss and God will reward them and God will punish their enemies. So it's a comfort to us that Jesus is a just judge in that regard. But secondly, what I want to drive out today is that that it's a comfort to us that God will judge us justly in his son. You say, how could it possibly be a comfort to me that God will judge me justly? Listen to the last three words. In his son. If God ju judging me justly in and of myself, I'm in trouble. It's not a comfort. It's then a fearful expectation to fall in the hands of the living God. But if God will judge me justly in his son, it's a comfort. I prayed this verse this morning, so I'll have you look there. Look at 1 John, and we'll conclude there. 1 John chapter 1, I'll wrap up there. Look what he says. It's, it's, a, it's a strange passage I quote often when I pray, in the sense that it kind of takes you back if you stop and spend any time on it. Verse 9 of 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, homo legeo, by the way, homo, same, legeo, say. If we say the same thing about our sins that God says about them, if we confess them, 
If we confess our sins, he, that's speaking of the Father here, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the question. How can forgiveness and cleansing from sin be said to be just? How can it be said to be the faithful and just work of God? If he forgives our sin, how can we say that justice has been served? See, if a judge forgives the guilty, we never declare justice. If you go to a courtroom this week and watch a trial of some horrendous criminal and everyone knows they're guilty and the judge sits at the bench and says, I know you're guilty, but I'm going to forgive you. You may go back into regular society. How many people in the courtroom are going to go, justice? So how is it that if we confess our sins, it can be said that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? How can that be? Because of chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, look there. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, by the way, that's a, put in the hypothetical, he knows what the answer is. Is anyone going to sin? Yes. He's just said that. If you say there's no sin in you in chapter 1, then you're a liar. So he knows you all sin. He's making an argument. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. And not only for ours, but, all, only, but, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen, Jesus has taken the wrath of God against your sins, absorbed the justice of God against your sins upon himself at the cross. So that God now looks at you with the righteousness of Christ after he's treated him as if he was filled up with the sin of your life. He's condemned him for your sin, and he's going to reward you for his righteousness. That's why if we confess our sins, in other words, if we're believing the gospel and repenting, confessing and repenting of our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness because Christ has been punished in our place. That's why he says in verse 7, look at chapter 1 and verse 7 of 1 John. But if we walk in the light, in other words, if we believe and so walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The fact that the Lord sees you as you really are would be terrifying if that was the last word. However, he sees you covered in the blood of his son. And he loves you. And he cares for you. His throne is gracious and merciful toward you. We know that on the basis of the fact that he sent his son for us while we were still sinners. It isn't he started loving us and becoming gracious and merciful once we did the right thing. It's that while we were committed to sin, he sent his son for us. You know, I know the Christian life, this race we run, is not easy. I know the constant tempests of the world, the flesh, and the devil can severely weaken our faith. But our weak faith, our weak faith, does not in any way weaken our living and powerful Savior and Lord. And he knows you, and he sees you, and he stands ready to help you. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would trust 
your Son evermore, that we would know He is our Lord and Savior. He is the judge of all. He sees us as we truly are, and He saves us. And that now, in Him, to be judged justly is to be rewarded and counted as righteous. Not because of anything we have done, but because of the work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you gave because of your great love with which you loved us. We pray for those who don't know your Son that they would look to him in faith and be saved, that they would never know him as, as those who are, or no longer I should say, know him as those who are, have a fearful expectation of falling into the hands of the living God, but they will now know him as those who are able to approach the throne of grace, knowing that there is grace and mercy to help in the time of need, knowing that Christ sees us, understands us, knows us, and loves us. We've done nothing to earn that or deserve that. I pray for those of us who do know him, Father, that we would persevere in the faith, that your spirit would work in us in such a way that we would continue to endure, that we would stay on the narrow path, that we would exhort one another as long as it's called today toward that end, that we would trust in your son, that we would look to him for help knowing he stands ready to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.